suicide is really a coupled phenomenon. Um, and that idea or theory actually came about in the 80s from a criminologist, um, Ronald Clark. But um, it, it's the idea that suicide is a behavior or feeling that's linked to a particular time and place and a plan. Um, and so this is true for a lot of other different behaviors and a lot of different criminal behaviors, too. But really, in this case, speaking to suicide, it's really coupled to a specific location and a specific plan. So it's the theory that if someone's experiencing depression or lost their job or has these going through a divorce, has these bad things in their lives and they're thinking about suicide and they're getting to the level where they actually have a plan of how they would die by suicide, oftentimes that plan is incredibly specific. So it's a very specific means, it's a specific location, time, there's all these things in there. And if we can disrupt just one little piece of that, the odds are that they actually won't go on to die by suicide. Today we welcome Scott Smith to the third place. A couple weeks ago, suicide came up in our conversation with Stephen D'Achille about postpartum depression and we also wanted to dedicate an entire conversation to suicide prevention. This is such an important topic, and in our conversation with Scott, we left feeling so much hope around making a real difference in decreasing the number of suicides. Scott Smith has worked in the field of behavioral health and human services for over a decade. He began his social work career in K-12 education by implementing trauma-informed strategies, restorative practices, and substance use prevention frameworks both in the U.S. and abroad. He has served on numerous boards and committees at the local and state levels, and previously served as the president of the Southwest Chapter of the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Currently, Scott works as the executive director of the Alliance for Suicide Prevention of Larimer County in Colorado. September is Suicide Awareness Month, and we also want to encourage you to take a couple moments and check out suicidepreventionlifeline.org, where we can learn how we can all make a difference. The Lifeline Network and its partners are working to change the conversation from suicide to suicide prevention and to the actions that promote healing, help, and give hope. Scott, welcome to the third place. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, empowering, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Scott, it is such an honor to bring you into the third place. Thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a real treat. So you're the executive director of the Alliance for Suicide Prevention of Larimer County, just here in Colorado, just down the road from me. And I feel like we definitely need to start there. Can you tell us about your work, the organization, and and what brought you to this role? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so... We've been, we're a small nonprofit. Um, we've been around, uh, since the late eighties, 1989. And primarily what we do is we prevent suicide through training and education, providing support and offering outreach. Um, so we do some adult education. We do some youth education in schools. We also have some peer outreach coordinators, um, primarily with the veteran population and with LGBTQ plus 
population and community. And then we also offer some grief support services for people that have lost a loved one to suicide. And then in addition to that, kind of our new exciting project that we have going on now um, is part of our community coalition, which is the Imagine Zero Coalition. And we're starting a pilot program. Um, we're one of six counties across the state of Colorado. Uh, it's called the Colorado National Collaborative. And it's kind of a pilot site in Colorado, um, but it's funded by the Centers for Disease Control and a couple other national groups. And it's taking this new approach to suicide and suicide prevention. It's really this kind of public health approach and looking upstream. And suicide prevention has been around for a long time, for 40-some years, but there hasn't been one particular intervention or approach that's been proven to be really effective. So the theory was, why don't we take all of the approaches that have shown some success, bundle them together, and try all of them at once in a community? So we're part of that program, and the goal is really to, over five years, decrease suicide rates by 20%. When I love that name of that Project Zero, you said Imagine Zero, Imagine, yeah, and, yeah. which yeah. Like references Imagine Zero suicides, right? So I mean, immediately you go go to that, and it's a very clear objective, and um, you know, it's it is really hopeful to even say that out loud. Imagine what zero could be. What brought you to that role? Yeah, I mean, I've actually only been here for about two and a half years, um, and I came from a different uh, community in Colorado. I moved from Durango, Colorado. Um, where I spent like, I think 10 or 12 years down there. I uh, got my master's degree down there and started my career as a social worker. And as part of that, I was a therapist for a little bit and I was kind of a case manager for a little bit, working with youth mostly. And while I found that work gratifying um, and I enjoyed it, I also saw that it, there could be more done kind of on a systems level and a community level. Um, so I started a, a program down there working with schools and more community folks and bringing resources to youth, um, and then also focusing on some policy work. And that's where I kind of got a passion and a taste for policy level and community level work. And then it was kind of time for me to leave that smaller community and swim in a bigger pond. And when I came up here, I wanted to work on a kind of more community and macro level. And suicide prevention has always been close to my heart as well. So. so it sounds like the avenue or the work, your social work is what brought you into the suicide. Was there, was there a personal connection that brought you to social work and or suicide prevention? Yeah. I mean, definitely both. I mean, I, you know, our, our lives and our personal experiences shape everything that we do um, and kind of color our backgrounds and our direction moving forward. So I think what got me into social work um, actually in my undergraduate career, I spent some time studying abroad um, in India and had some experiences there um, and got introduced to Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism in particular, and really latched on to some of those philosophies and paradigms, namely kind of the basic tenets that, you know, all sentient beings suffer and all sentient beings desire to not suffer. And, you know, being a human, we have this incredible capacity to help other beings and help each other and alleviate at least some of that suffering. So I really latched on to that, um, and through my experiences in India, that's what kind of put me on the path to go get my master's and be a social worker. And then kind of like I said, um, I wanted to be a therapist and kind of, you know, save the world one kid or one person at a time, which I think is pretty common for most folks entering graduate school. And then after just getting my feet wet, kind of realized that system work and community work was really 
my passion and, and honestly where my strengths kind of, kind of stood. Mm-hmm. And then, um, David just back to suicide. Also, I did have some personal experiences around suicide. I've lost several people in my life to suicide. Um, I think starting off, um, my best friends growing up, um, from childhood, their brother died by suicide when I was in college. And then several years later, their dad died by suicide also. So that was, that was a pretty intense, um, experience and kind of my first taste of what that was like and what that grief was like. And then also just witnessing that within their family and circles and seeing the ripple effect. Yeah. Exactly. The ripple effect. Yeah. And then actually when, after I graduated, um, with my master's in social work, I was doing some youth programming over the summer. Um, there really was suicide prevention programming for at risk youth. We partnered with a local school counselor. He was a great guy. We became really close. Um, he had a PhD in psychology and he ended up dying by suicide, uh, later that year. And so that was kind of a, an event that really hit home too, that showed, you know, ev- no one's immune from this. And even someone who's working in the field, you know, was still impacted with that and died by suicide. So I've definitely had several experiences with it. I'm, uh, immediately struck by the, the fact that the, your family friends lost their brother and their father to suicide because I feel, like, and maybe you can, you know, this brings us into some of the, the myths or the truths around suicide, but that I feel like I've heard of a lot of stories where it does, uh, there's multiple instances within uh, a family or a bloodline. Um, is that typically the case? Does that show up more often or is that not really the case? It just may, may strike us more because it's, I can't even fathom two suicides within a, a close intimate network like that. Yeah, I mean, it actually is a pretty big risk factor. So, I mean, the risk factor being if you've lost a loved one to suicide, it puts you at higher risk for dying by suicide, especially when it's a close family member. And I think that points to how unique and intense and tragic the grief is around suicide, is that it's it's just so overwhelming and it can be so much for folks that it really can increase those feelings of hopelessness. And I think, you know, decades ago, it was probably theorize that there is some genetic component um, to that. But I think all the research and definitely my beliefs are just more in the fact of having that loss and that tragedy and then maybe not having a safe way to process that grief and maybe our society not wanting to talk about it and be open to those discussions and process the grief also probably has a link. So that's the that's the connection that I see. And so I'm curious to hear more too of like, what are those risk factors? Because clearly we're not talking about suicide the way that we should, but we're probably not talking about those risk factors either. Yeah. And I mean, these change over time as far as like what level of, you know, importance or like in the hierarchy of risk factors, that kind of list shuffles around has changed over time. I think more and more now um, in the field, people are looking at suicide as more of a public health problem and a community problem. Um, you know, previous in the 80s, 90s, or I mean, shoot, even 10 years ago, suicide was really kind of viewed as this, it's only people with mental illness that die by suicide. And I think that theory or, or worldview is problematic in a couple ways. I mean, one, it kind of otherizes the problem and also stigmatizes folks with mental illness. Like, oh, that's that's their problem. That's That person has bipolar disorder. That's their problem, their issue. When in reality, I mean, suicide impacts everyone. Um, and there was some former statistics thrown out there 
long ago and older um, suicide prevention programming that like 90% of people that die have a, you know, had a diagnosed mental illness. And I think what we're coming to realize now is actually a vast majority of people don't have a diagnosed mental illness. And it really is some of these bigger, broader community risk factors that influence suicide, such as uh, economic distress, um, like losing your job, losing a relationship, substance use issues. Um, there's all sorts of these, these bigger things and these bigger societal factors that impact suicide. And if we have this new lens, too, then we're able to have new solutions that are actually pretty effective on the policy level. I mean, one that comes to mind um, is just around minimum wage. So the New York Times came out with a study. Gosh, COVID's been a weird year, so my time's off. But I think it was just last year that showed for every dollar an hour you raise the minimum wage in a community or a state, the suicide rate decreases by 4%. Whoa. Yeah, I feel like I would have never made that link otherwise. I feel like when suicide comes up, there's like a lot of blame or ownership put on the person that is maybe is a little bit less warranted than what I'm hearing from you now, right? It's less of a pointing a finger at them and saying, oh, well, clearly something was underlying within them. Something was broken in them. When in actuality, it sounds like it's more about the influences of what, uh, what they're in relationship to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated confluence of different factors, you know, and things going on in society, the complicated landscape of our own mental health and resources in our community and what's happening to us. And I, I also think it's just problematic to kind of put that blame and some of that shame on the individual, which you're right, it was really common. It's still, and it still happens. I mean, just look at our language around suicide. It's still, really common for people to use the term committed suicide. And if you think about that term, like what are other things that people might commit, right? It's a crime. It's a sin. And that's actually where the term originated from, you know, from it being a sin. And it actually used to be a crime. And if you have that shame around an issue, not only does it probably make it less likely for someone to seek help, because they're probably going to be shamed if they go seek help, but it also provides some shame and some not warm feelings to the survivors left behind if they lost a loved one to suicide. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because shame, I mean, shame is coming from a place where typically like a pattern of abuse, even if it's or um, being familiar with a punishment. And so I could see that when you're living in shame, when someone that you know close to you passes away, you're, you're going to want to do anything to either fix it or to it actually could potentially perpetuate the desire to punish yourself, which could ultimately end up in the exact same result. And, and I mean, I think the thing that kind of sticks out to me about that, too, is that the shame of why didn't you see it? You know, like, here's this person that was close to you. You clearly had uh, must have saw it coming. You must have seen a pattern. But it feels like to me, many of the suicide stories that I've heard about or am connected to, there is a like an element of surprise that someone was struggling and it was almost a hundred percent this negative narrative inside their own head. And the outside world, no matter how close, really had no idea. At least it feels like that's somewhat common in, in suicide. How do we talk about things more openly? Like, how do we let people know that their things are safe to talk about around us? Or is that a way that we can be, um, you know, it's almost like creating that safe place for people that are close to us where they know that they can talk to us just about anything could really help 
uh, minimize suicide rates too. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that we can do. And I mean, I pointed out that our language really has a big impact on reducing the shame and making it safe. How we talk about something or someone really matters. And that shows a sign of safety as well. And, you know, you bring up a great point, like talking about mental health and suicide is a great way to actually open the door and prevent suicide. And what a fabulous opportunity that we have now that mental health has kind of risen to the light a little bit more after COVID and lots more folks are talking about it. So we have this incredible opportunity right now to discuss suicide and mental health in general. And I would just encourage everyone, um, you know, be open about asking about how folks are doing, checking in. And also, if you have the hairs stand up on the back of your neck or if someone's been really down or you're noticing some of the warning signs, which, you know, we can go into, um, don't be afraid to just ask directly if someone's thinking about suicide. And there's a, there's a couple different ways to ask about it. And it it does seem a little scary and a little bit intimidating, especially the first couple times that you do it. But I think just like anything that's scary or intimidating, it becomes a little bit easier the more you do it. And that is really what it takes to be open and get folks to talk about it. And it's probably one of the reasons why a lot of people feel suicidal in the first place is they don't feel comfortable that they can share with someone about how they're doing or struggling. Yeah, I think that that's so important to say. And I also just want to ask you, how can you press in more if our instinct or our tendency is to respond in a positive way to protect the other person or because we don't even have the words to express ourselves. Like what about the person that's on the other end? You know, so often it's like we ask each other, how are you? Good. Okay, cool, cool. Like it's sort of, we skirt over everything. Like is there anything else that could provide besides that intuition or that back of the neck feeling that you mentioned that could be more intentional and really get to the truth of what's behind someone's quote unquote good response? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of language tools that also like help folks that we often kind of talk about in our trainings. Um, I mean, one kind of general rule is to just ask directly. That can be a whole spectrum of things. So on like the one end really directly, that can look like, hey, are you thinking about killing yourself? That feels a little bit scary to folks. And I understand that something in the middle might be like, hey, are you thinking about suicide or one little bit safer way? Um, we actually use a nice little anecdote that I think would be fitting for you all. So when Viagra was first uh, created, all the doctors and everyone who was marketing it and Pfizer and the pharmaceutical companies, their kind of first messaging around that was, and all the billboards was like, hey, men, we now have a problem for erectile dysfunction. Talk to your doctor about Viagra. Um, you know, this miracle drug, Viagra. And, you know, for the first couple months, they actually didn't get many patients interested into it. So they did some focus groups, they had some social scientists work on it and some marketing people, and they tweaked how they brought up the question and they normalized the issue. So they changed their messaging to, hey, gentlemen, oftentimes guys around a certain age experience this problem. It's actually pretty common. If this is happening to you, talk to your doctor. So they normalize that experience within kind of framing it. And so if we extrapolate that same arguably pretty awkward conversation for some folks. If we flip that to suicide prevention, it might look like, hey, so-and-so, couldn't help but notice that, you know, you're feeling down lately and I know you've been struggling at your job. And sometimes when that happens, people think about suicide. I'm just wondering if this is happening for you. 
Well, yeah. And I love like what you said too, like the opportunity that we have now that getting out of COVID, we, we are equipped and almost given permission to talk a little bit more about just all the mental stresses, whether it's mental illness or just simply mental stress. Um, you know, and it's been a hard year for, I mean, honestly, it's been a hard year for everybody, right? So we've all had mental stress and we can all relate to each other, maybe just a little bit more. Um, but with that in mind, like my closest personal connection to suicide is my great grandfather. And when we were talking about ripple effects earlier, like I, like things were coming up for me, like he, my grandfather was the youngest of five kids. My, his father committed suicide while he was in utero. So my grandfather uh, grew up without a dad, um, didn't even know him ever, wasn't even held by him. And I can see generational ripple effects where that affected really poorly my grandfather. And then that affected how he raised my dad, which then like, it feels like by the time it got to me, things were a little bit, a little bit more removed to where it's not so um, evident. But thinking about COVID and thinking about just even my own personal connection, it feels like um, there's this historical piece of suicide that's interesting to me. Like we're now given permission, but I'm sure like I can't even imagine the world that my great grandfather lived in and what, what led him to suicide. Yeah, no, you, you bring up a really good point. It does seem like this kind of generational thing. And I think that's twofold. On the one hand, it's something that you named where if it was stigmatized now and really stigmatized 20 years ago, 50 or a hundred years ago, right? Incredibly stigmatized and you couldn't talk about it. And so there definitely wasn't the space to process it and talk about it afterwards and talk about that grief and kind of work with that grief. Um, and kind of, you know, bring that to not a closure because I don't think there ever is a closure, but kind of integrate that into your life and kind of move forward and heal that pain and talk to your offspring and your family members around that. So I think that's definitely part of it. And then I also think, you know, there is a genetic component to it also as far as epigenetics and how trauma is passed down generation to generation and some of that new research that we're seeing now that's so fascinating. So I, I think, I mean, like most things, it's, Yes, and, and it's the answer is complicated and there's a lot of things going on there. But I think it's definitely a component of the genetic thing or epigenetics. And then also just not having a safe space to talk about it and process it and not being encouraged and feeling safe to do that. Well, and, you know, like being that that's the paternal side of my family, like men in general are also told not to talk about things. And, and I think we're continuing to break those barriers now today more than ever before. But, you know, there, there seems to be a gender um, discrepancy there as well, just because men are told not, you know, you're allowed to have two emotions, be happy when your sports team wins, or you're allowed to be angry, you know, you're not allowed to cry. <laughs> so, you know, we, we haven't been historically given those tools. And that there's some generational evolution there. And just the, the last couple generations I see as well. Yeah, and that really does highlight too just the difference in how men you know, experience their emotions and what's safe to express. Um, and then looking at the suicide rates between men and women. I was just I mean, going to ask you that. I'm really curious about, um, yeah, is there a higher rate and, and any other sort of truths around suicide that might be helpful for people that are unfamiliar? Yeah. And I mean, we've been talking about suicide for a little bit, but I also just want to kind of go back and preface that. I mean, suicide is really complicated. 
And also it's, you know, a sensitive subject because it does affect so many people. So it can be, you know, kind of triggering or complicated when we talk about suicide as data or numbers or trends, because also these are people's lives. So it's just holding both of these truths or all of these truths together um, with some some brevity and, you know, with the best intentions. And that being said, there are some some trends nationally. Um, I can speak more to it locally just because I'm much more familiar with our local data. Um, and I have a much more nuanced look at it because we can zoom in a little bit closer. But the amount of people who die by suicide, at least in northern Colorado, and in Colorado in general, and most of the West, really it's predominantly men um, have a higher rate of dying by suicide. And it's also, if you look at it, men generally have a particular set of circumstances that leads up to that. And men also usually have a particular set of circumstances of how they die by suicide and what's going on for them. And interestingly enough, women generally have more attempts by suicide and or get more help. And men generally have less attempts and usually die by different means and more fatal means. Wow. I'm really glad that you brought that up too. Just that like, because it's, it is a high number that we can desensitize it because there's a number when there's actual real people behind these numbers that that first came up with us when we did a grief series last year about COVID. And at the time there were only 200,000 deaths, but here's these 200,000 people and now 600,000 people that have all died. But because it was in such a high number, it's really easy to get, well, there's just this number and it's this percentage of the population versus there's 600,000 families and real people behind those numbers. Um, so I think that that was a really important thing that you just said there. Yeah, it's, it's important, I think, for folks working in the field and especially, you know, myself, just to ground myself and that all these numbers are real people. And it's an important thing just to be able to walk both lines and, you know, understand that grief and that sadness and that pain and that love. And also kind of looking at it from a bigger picture perspective and data and that public health approach, because we should be wanting to solve this issue. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate the fact that we can touch on both perspectives, the human and the the data, just because I feel that, you know, I think of like Myers-Briggs, are you a feeling type or are you a thinking type, right? And that whatever helps you connect to the issue will be the way for you to cause a positive influence or be able to have those conversations. So it, it, it just like what you said, it's it's both and and that it just we got to meet people where they're at. And I want to know with the Imagine Zero, what are those like, I think, did you say there were five different ways or approaches that are coming together or a bundle of approaches that you found since no one thing has obviously worked? Um, what are some of those things that are working that you guys are pulling in together that you feel like have been that you're going to test over the next five years? Yeah, and it, it truly is a bundle. I mean, we're talking like, you know, over 50 some odd approaches. So it's wow. truly a, a bundle. They kind of package it in six different areas. But a lot of those things are really upstream kind of prevention and intervention models. So a big piece of it is economic stability. So fo focusing on housing security, food security, child care, some of those economic um, stressors or risk factors that also um, benefit all sorts of other outcomes, right? They don't just work for suicide prevention. They work for uh, substance use prevention. They work for intimate partner violence prevention. They do all sorts of beneficial things. 
Um, so economic stability is one. Um, one that's like more particular to suicide is focusing on access to lethal means. Um, also some other broad stream things like prevention education, public awareness campaigns, things like that. Focusing on postvention too. So how do you support people after they experience a loss by suicide? Because as we mentioned earlier, that's a risk factor. And as David shared too, like having suicide in his family, if that wasn't talked about or supported, maybe that could cause some risk factors down the road. So postvention really is prevention as well. Yeah, when you and I first spoke, I was stunned by something that you told me, and you'll have to, you know, say it in the way that you did, but because you just mentioned lethal means, and it really reminded me of something that you said that I've actually repeated to probably 50 people since we last spoke. And so I'm excited to broadcast this to our much wider audience, but that someone that is experiencing suicidal thoughts or has considered it or, and, and like I said, correct me, there's usually a when and a how, or it's, there's this, this planned approach and that if you can intervene, the how is that's where you can really make a strong impact. So can you tell our listeners what you told me? And then also let's get to the lethal mean side of this too. Yeah, you bet. And yeah, Mary, giving me a challenge, uh, <laughs> challenging me to remember what I said. No, I, I, uh, I think I was talking about how suicide is a, a coupled phenomenon. And it, I'm, are you all Malcolm Gladwell fans at all? Definitely. Yes. Yep. So in Malcolm's new book, um, or newer book, Talking with Strangers, he has a couple chapters about this, um, where he kind of lays out the idea in a, in a pretty clear way in the history. I do think he missed the boat on a couple things, which I'm always happy to critique other people's brilliant uh, theories and, <laughs> or stories. But he, he talks about how suicide is really a coupled phenomenon. Um, and that idea or theory actually came about in the 80s from a criminologist, um, Ronald Clark. But um, it, it's the idea that suicide is a behavior or feeling that's linked to a particular time and place and a plan. Um, and so this is true for a lot of other different behaviors and a lot of different criminal behaviors, too. But really, in this case, speaking to suicide, it's really coupled to a specific location and a specific plan. So it's the theory that if someone's experiencing depression or lost their job or has these going through a divorce, has these bad things in their lives and they're thinking about suicide and they're getting to the level where they actually have a plan of how they would die by suicide. Oftentimes that plan is incredibly specific. So it's a very specific means, it's a specific location, time, there's all these things in there. And if we can disrupt just one little piece of that, the odds are that they actually won't go on to die by suicide. And Gladwell lays out a couple really cool examples of this. Um, he kind of starts with uh, England in the 1950s and 60s. Um, so England, uh, after World War One and Two, used a thing called town gas uh, to heat their homes. So that was, you know, this is pre-natural gas. And town gas was really high in carbon monoxide. And so the suicide rate became actually pretty high for middle-aged women um, and predominantly they were all dying and dying by suicide using town gas. So in their ovens or inhaling it or inhaling it direct. Right. And then through just some innovation and other things that happened, um, town gas was kind of costly. You had to mine for coal for it. It was dirty. It wasn't that efficient. Um, and then we had the advent of the discovery of natural gas. So over a period of, I think, eight or 10 years, town gas was phased out and replaced with natural gas. 
And this is across the board in the whole country. Um, and natural gas, it burns differently, it combusts differently, and it has relatively low or zero carbon monoxide. So, I mean, if you were to turn your oven on with natural gas and, you know, breathe that in and put your head in it, you would definitely get a headache, you'd probably get sick, you know, you wouldn't feel good, but you're not going to die by suicide. As opposed to where town gas, it was actually pretty lethal means and pretty quick. And so if you look at that period, and if you understand that suicide is coupled to a particular means, um, and if you, especially among um, adult-aged females, middle-aged females, that suicide rate actually dropped in half. And so around 44, 45% um, of suicides in, U- in the UK were because of town gas. And so after that town gas was phased out, I think it was phased out maybe by like late 60s or like early 70s, the suicide rate dropped by about 45%. And so it's not that folks go on to find a different way of dying by suicide. It's that their plan was interrupted and their means was interrupted. And so they actually didn't go on to die by suicide. Which is, it reminds me of that other example that you gave with this, you know, that we see in movies or used to see, probably less so, but the car in the garage example. Can you break down that uh, evolution of technology too? Because I thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, that's another great example. So in 1975, um, all cars made in the United States had to have a catalytic converter. Um, Catalytic converters have had a little rise in the news lately, so folks might know about it, um, just because they have some precious metals in them, like um, platinum and other things. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just had one stolen. (laughs) Oh, no shit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, So that's I think that's why folks know about them now, is because unfortunately, you know, maybe this is a broader issue and it could bring up other things, but... A lot of uh, people were noticing their catalytic converters were getting stolen off their cars. So folks are probably familiar with the name of it, at least. But essentially, what they do is it's kind of like a secondary burning chamber um, just to reduce emissions, right, for environmental reasons was the, was the main goal of introducing catalytic converters. So in 1975, all cars manufactured in the U.S. or brought into the U.S. had to have a catalytic converter which scrubbed away the CO2, but also burned off the carbon monoxide. So oftentimes, pre, you know, pre that with a car, if you were to go into a garage and run your car with the garage closed and everything, it was pretty lethal. And now, again, if that happens, I think someone would get a really bad headache, get sick. It would not be healthy. It is not good. But the lethality was really reduced. And I think a point that Gladwell doesn't bring up, this is one of the areas where he really missed the boat, is he, he brings up the fact that firearms and handguns are kind of America's town gas or like was the car. And he also uses an example of the Golden Gate Bridge, which I'll get into in a minute, hopefully. But he kind of talks about, so if we can reduce the use of handguns or reduce access to handguns, and he kind of hints at some laws or making them illegal, we can reduce suicides. And I think where he misses the boat here is that all the examples that he uses, and we have lots of other examples looking around the globe too, is that most of these things weren't legislated away by making them illegal, right? We use technological innovation to get rid of these things or to change things, right? Because we have this amazing technological capability, technology is increasing so fast, and humans are great problem solvers. I don't think just making something legal or illegal is going to solve a complicated thing. I mean, let's look at cars, for example. Cars are such a 
intimate, integral part of the American landscape, right? It's such a part of the American culture. I mean, I'm, I love cars. Malcolm Gladwell is actually a car guy. I think he owns like two Porsches and a bunch of other cars. So like cars are so woven into our fabric, much like firearms now, regardless of where you fall on that issue or if you're a firearm owner or not, they're part of the American culture. And so I think trying to remove something that has that cultural significance through a quick law and instantly doing it is going to be ineffective. So it's just not the most productive way to approach that issue in my mind. Mm-hmm. So, and you just tease though, because I really want to get to um, what you just said, because I think it's unique and powerful, but you also just teased to the golden gate example. And I, I definitely need to go there before we go next. So tell, you know, share that. Cause I, I'm just like absolutely baffled by what happened at the Golden Gate and and how there was intervention in not a technological advancement way, but it sounds like it wasn't it more of like a personal intervention. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was both. Yes, and my favorite answer for any question. Yes, and. <laughs> well, you're in the third place. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly that's, what that's right. what we say too. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the truth. Yes, and. Um, yeah. So and and again, this is in in Gladwell's book and. No doubt he does a much more articulate job describing it than I would. But I, I would just, you know, have some critiques around around his approach and take it a step further. But how he, he ties in the Golden Gate Bridge. So since the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, was, was put up, I can't remember the year, but it's, you know, a staple of San Francisco and California culture, right? Just much like cars or firearms in a way, if you extrapolate that. But since it's, you know, since it was put up, I believe over 1,500 people have jumped off the bridge and died by suicide. Um, and there was a social scientist um, who looked at, I think, 515 people that were going to the Golden Gate Bridge to jump off. And this was like maybe between like the 30s, like up into the 70s. Um, so he, you know, interviewed and did research on 515 people that went to go jump off, but there were restrained or stopped, like whether that be a passerby or, you know something like that happened or a police officer, I think was actually the case in quite a few of them. So we did some research in that. And so of that 515 people that were stopped from dying by suicide that day, by that particular means, only 15 went on to die by suicide with a different method. So it it really shows that suicide is coupled to a very specific time, place, and means. And I think this kind of flies in the face of the older ways of looking at suicide, where people thought, oh, it's, you know, just the symptom of someone having mental illness. They're going to kill themselves no matter what. If we take away the pills, they're going to hang themselves. If we take away this, they're going to find a way to die regardless. But this study is pretty clear. Well, we'll pause today's conversation here and come back next week as we talk with Scott about gun control and their role in suicide prevention. Also, please share this episode with people that you love. The more people that have tools about how to talk about suicide, the closer we can become to imagining zero deaths. Have a great week and be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms. Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. 
The third place is all about continuing the conversation. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.